Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Charlie Teo is a household name in Australia known for being a successful brain surgeon. His work has saved thousands of lives. Recently, he's been sidelined by the same profession that sought out his services for so long and and also crucified by the media. And yet, he still shows kindness and compassion to his fellow human beings. Charlie Teo, welcome to The Stick Up. Charlie Teo, thank you for agreeing to be on The Stick Up, mate. It's it's an honour and a uh, privilege to have you here. It's my pleasure, Russell. You might not say that after after the no, podcast. No, not, man. A big fan of what you do, <laughs> and I could not think of a human being in this world that absorbs pressure better than you. <laughs> I mean, you're the best fullback in the, in the world at the moment. You know what I mean? Like that pressure. But anyway, I just want to go through some basics. So, wh- where did you grow up, mate? I grew up in Sydney, in the western suburbs of Sydney, in a very blue collar area called Picnic Point. Uh, but you know, typical Chinese family, they really wanted me to work my way out of poverty through education. So it was all about education, education, education. And so they tried to uh, send me to the best schools and I went to a school called Trinity Grammar initially and then Scotch College after that. Was it? Did you get that on a scholarship or? No, no, no. My mum and dad worked hard to pay yeah. for it. Uh, my dad then just left the family when I was about nine years of age. So mum struggled as a single mum, but she got me through as well. And uh, so it was all a bit of hard yakka, but eventually uh, I got a very good education at Scots uh, by the time I Scots finished. is uh, renowned for uh, it's a big sporting school and obviously academia school. But did you, were you did you play much sport in, at Scots? You know, I wasn't very good at sport. I didn't have good... You know, I didn't have good ball skills. I, I played rugby, played in the second 15 at one stage, but mostly in the fourths. Uh, I played cricket because I had to, but I was never very good at it. Played tennis, not so good at it. Uh, I was in the first basketball team, but it was only because not too many kids were interested in basketball yeah. at the time. Uh, but the sport that I really, really loved and excelled at was karate. So... That was an off-campus uh, extracurricular activity that I did at a local church uh, in Randwick, uh, close to Scots College. And so I did karate for many, many years and got my black belt, and that's the one sport I really excelled at. And it gives you the, the, the beauty about those sports from a young age, it's, it's the discipline that they give you, doesn't it? Did, how did that really help you in your, in your life? Oh, my God, Russell. It helped me more than you even understand. I mean, uh, being Chinese... In a very white school, there, were, there was only one other Chinese guy in the school. And so I was continuously uh, mocked and teased and, uh, and uh, persecuted for being Chinese. Uh, and so I could have easily sort of become the victim uh, or I could have sort of risen above it and tried to, uh, 
and tried to uh, hold my own and, and karate really helped me do that. I'm a big fan of teaching kids self-defense and uh, like I, I do a little bit of work with kids that have been bullied and the first thing I say to any parent is get them into boxing, uh, a martial art of sorts and um, <clears throat> I'll tell you what the bully and not is up. One thing about bullies, bullies don't like people that are going to have a go. Did you find that? Just the fact through the karate, did you find it, you know, that uh, took away a lot of the bullying? Oh, absolutely. I endorse that 100% because, you know, people are scared that once you teach someone who's being bullied uh, a, a, a form of self-defence, they'll become the bullies, but that's not the case at all. Uh, you know, bullying is a culture. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's inherent in the person. They're basically cowards. Uh, and uh, so just because you become confident with your own skills, just because you've learned a, a martial art or a boxing doesn't mean you're going to become a bully. So I endorse that, uh, what you do, 100%. Now, what was the childhood growing up? How many kids in the family? Myself and my older sister, but uh, again, a typical Chinese family. The boy is the one who's revered the most and the girl takes second place. Uh, and uh, so even though she was older than me, I, I had a lot of responsibility uh, I used to want to be the one that represented the family, you know, wrote the letters to people and stuff. And then, uh, and so my sister was very much uh, 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 not a second class citizen, but she was treated like a girl as opposed to the, the favoured boy. And at, at nine years old, when your dad left, I guess you would have had to step up even more, wouldn't you? Oh, my God, Russell, I can remember writing something, something happened with the council. I can't remember now, but I remember having to write the letter to the council and represent the family. I can remember having to, you know, represent the family in all sorts of things and, uh, you know, protecting my mum and my sister. So, yeah, given a lot of responsibilities, a very young kid. Did you ever think about becoming a lawyer from a young age? Yeah, I did. In fact, I did debating and I was a bad debater until I did. I got my black belt. Once I got my black belt... Everything improved. My debating skills improved. My schoolwork improved. Uh, my academic record improved. Uh, I became a better person, I think. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. As, as part of that, of course, I uh, uh, wanted to become a public speaker, lawyer, barrister. Uh, in fact, I'm not even quite sure why I didn't go into it, except to say that... Uh, I don't know. I think my desire to become a doctor was just greater than that. But no, definitely law was on the on the cards. And just, I just, I'm, I'm interested in what you just said. Then, do you think the karate give you the focus and the discipline that you said, yeah. like it sort of improved your academia? And did you think it, it give you that? That's really an interesting thing. What you've just said, I love what you just said about you know the the through karate you got more focused in in your study and, and that improved and that. Do you think that that was the discipline from? the karate that sort of give you that fo and the focus that you need to be good at it? A hundred percent. I mean, I, I have no reservations in saying that uh, the discipline that I learned from karate, the fact that you had to train every day, the fact that you went to the dojo, you had to show respect to your elders and the, and the, and the more experienced uh, uh, karate uh, students uh, all contributed to me becoming more focused, more concentrated, more uh, determined at school as well, and all, all my other uh, subjects. No, no, I feel very strongly about that. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, because, you know, my story is I spent 23 years in jail. But I look back on a lot of things like kids, right, <clears throat> a lot of kids that were involved in little athletics, swimming, any sort of martial arts or team sports had a less chance of ever getting up in, into any trouble. It's amazing the stats on that. It's amazing. 
I, I bet you there are stats on it, Russell. I, look, I bet you there's actual statistics to show that people who are involved in sport are less likely to be involved in crime. I just, I just can't imagine how that wouldn't be the case. Where did the passion to become a doctor sort of come from? Oh, I don't know. Uh, my dad was a doctor, uh, but he was never a role model. In fact, I didn't like him that much, and he left us at a very early age. So it, I, I can't put uh, that as the number one. I, I think it's in you. You know, I really think it's just in you. I started off as a motor mechanic assistant or apprentice because I loved doing things mm. with my hands and I knew that I was good with my hands. And then, uh, I don't know, I had this urge to help people and I had this real urge to sort of uh, practice medicine. I don't know where, it, yeah, I'm not quite sure where it came from. It, it could have come from, no, nah, I was going to say maybe it came from watching a lot of TV because I did that. But, you know, I mostly watch cowboy movies and I didn't want to. You might become a bank robber, so. mate. <laughs> that's, where, no, that's, where, that's where mine come from mate I'll tell you too many cowboy movies I took it too serious Charlie now you, you're involved with voiceless uh, now where did the love of animals come from because I've always said this the love of animals demonstrates a person that has a lot of compassion empathy and, and love yes I, look, I agree with you on that one too Russ okay so it's a really funny story actually uh my home was a very basic fibro home that I grew up in and it only had two bedrooms and yet, you know, there was mum, dad and two kids. So mum and dad shared one bedroom, my sister shared the other bedroom and I was put outside the house in a little sort of uh, outhouse that stuck onto the back of the house uh, and that was my bedroom. Well, my parents, uh, I don't know why they did this, but they would lock the door every night when I they put me outside, so I couldn't get into the house. I was locked out every night in the dark by myself throughout my entire childhood. And I think I remember being I remember being comforted by one thing and one thing only, and that was my dog, who used to come and sleep with me. And so I had the dog in bed with me. We provided com- companionship and security to each other. Uh, and my love of dogs, I think, must have grown from that. And from that moment on, I just loved animals. Uh, and we had dogs, you know, I've had dogs all my life. And, and I, I think, you know, loving dogs, of course, you, you can't help but love other, other animals as well. Yeah. It's, oh, man, my dog, I've got a, an American staffy and he just, his name is Zeus, and he just, in that bed, man, he just, he's me wrapped, me wrapped around his little finger. Mitch, um, and, and, and just tell us about the progress from high school into Scots. You went to Trinity first. What, what was that like and, and what was the move to Scots? Why did you move from Trinity to Scots? Uh, so, look, my only memories of school are negative memories, I'm sorry. I really, I really can't think of anything too positive. Uh, a lot of racism, uh, a lot of uh, teasing, uh, bullying. Uh, what else can I think of? I mean... Mostly uh, me wanting to be one of the boys and not being accepted as one of the boys. Uh, always wanting to be accepted. No, it was, that's basically my memory of school. Uh, Trinity to Scots was simply because the Chinese from colonised Asian countries always wanted to be more English than yeah. the English. And given that my parents were from Singapore, they worshipped anything English, i.e. GPS greater public schools, uh, you know, playing rugby, rowing in the first eight, uh, that sort of stuff. So, you know, they were really, really wanting me to go to a greater public school, i.e. Scots. Uh, they insisted that I play rugby. 
row, row, uh, do rowing, uh, playing the mass pipes and drums, uh, you know, all those very, very uh, British English uh, type things. Yeah, well, man, that it's, uh, they've got a reputation like somewhere like Scotts Cottage is the old boys club, whether it's in all professions, uh, the, they, they must to get like any, any of the lawyers that went through Scotts have got that old boys club. I dare say it would be the same in the medical profession. Did you find that was the case once you got into the medical profession? Yes, look, one of the one of the advantages of going to a uh, private school is that uh, it's the contacts that you make uh, at school that you use yeah. forever. And uh, there's no doubt about it. I'm not saying it's the right thing or not, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of places that are jobs for the boys and being part of the fraternity in the club. <clears throat> and having gone to Scots, it did help, I think, in, in, in some aspects of your life. Yeah. With that sort of the racism that you faced, mate, obviously it would have caused a lot of trauma, mate. Like we're looking, we're starting to really identify trauma and what it does to the, uh, what it does to young people. I, I know, man, I, you know, I, I, I've, I was sexually abused in a boys' home at fourteen years old, so I know what trauma does. But what did it do to you to form your your opinion of the world? Oh, I, I have a pretty strong opinion on this, uh, and I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but I think when you're traumatized. As a child, you can either rise above it or you can become a victim to it. And like, I'm sorry that that sounds black and white, but that's been my attitude to it. And, you know, I was bullied relentlessly. My father beat the crap out of me. You quite face more than most, Charlie, but being locked out of the family home for most kids, and, and, and that, that's a traumatic, mate, that's scary as shit. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was. But, you know, again, I just, I took it as a, uh, you know, the old saying, Russ, you know, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I just felt that those things probably added to my, you know, my pers- my personality and my char- the characteristic that I have of uh, absolute tenacity. And, uh, I mean, you know, throughout life, we're always faced with challenges. And, again, you can either just persevere, 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 or you can let it sort of rule you and... Uh, and destroy you, and uh, I'm I'm lucky enough where I had the personality where every time I got knocked down, I'd just get up and I'd be a little bit stronger. Yeah. Uh, all that I'm going through right now, for yeah. example. I mean, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But all that we're going through right now, it, it could. It, it, I'm not saying this boastfully, but it, you know, the stuff I've been through could, would would and has destroyed people, you know, countless times, and I seem to just. Keep sort of taking knocks and uh, and uh, learning from those knocks and becoming a stronger person. Saying that, like I, I know I'd know plenty of people that similar positions. They had like a dis well dysfunctional, you know, um, family in regards to you know rejection and stuff like that, and they ended up really bad drug addicts. I, I, I know of I know of a mate of mine right now. He comes from a very very wealthy family, but his parents were just so distant. Man, he'd become one of the worst heroin addicts I, I know, and, and and I dare say he he didn't face half the trauma that you've faced, mate. That, you know, it really, really for me it sickens me. I hate racism. It just sickens me that just it's done by cowards. But the parents that teach that sh- that rubbish, you know, that, you know, know. that's crazy because it's just not. It's a learnt behaviour. Yeah, yeah, and like I say, Russ, you can either become a victim to it and just you know feel demoralised, persecuted. Uh, inferior, uh, or you can rise above them and think to yourself, well, you know, it's their, it's their loss. Uh, they're the ones who are ignorant, not me. 
uh, and uh, become a stronger person for it. The biggest aspect for me for trauma was shame, you know. That was the shame that was the hardest part that I found to overcome. But over a period of time, I learned that that shit don't belong to me. It belongs to the person that is saying it or doing it to you. That's who should be shamed. That's what I talk about. I've got this saying, right? I say, you know, uh, I carried a backpack of stuff that didn't belong to me. It was shame, anger, guilt, resentment, and everything like that. When I, when I tell my story, and like you tell your story, hand it back to its rifle owner, you hand it back to the racists themselves. That's who belong, who should be carrying your trauma, not you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, they're great lessons. And there's that other expression, you know, like what other people think of you is not none of your business. I mean, that's a really hard one to live by because what other people think of you tends to sort of hurt you, uh, affect you, change your uh, change your approach. But you, you've got to keep thinking that. You've just got to keep thinking. They can think whatever they like. I'm sure of myself. I know exactly the sort of person I am. Uh, and you know, and, you know, you're just going to know that you're a good person, and that's that's where parenting really comes yeah. in for us. If you've got a parent yeah. who doesn't reinforce the fact that you're a good person, that you are worthy, uh, that you uh, uh, that you deserve respect, then a lot of those kids just never they never develop that self respect and that the worthiness, and and that's why it affects them so badly. But if you have a parent who drums that into you, you are worthy, then when all those other nasty haters in the world come at you, you can kind of think, well, fuck you. You know, I am I know who I am. I know I'm a good person. I know that I'm worthy. And you can say or think whatever you like. Uh, it's not going to affect me. How, how do you apply that to your sort of the, the stuff that's happened with you now, mate? I think we're going to touch on that, what's happening. You know, people challenging your integrity. How do you apply them childhood, how you dealt with that as a child to what's going on now? Well, I don't actually consciously apply it, but, yes, yeah, subconsciously I'm sure I'm applying it every day of my life because, you know, it doesn't it, – you, you'd be lying if you said it didn't affect you. When all those nasty stories come out challenging the sort of person you are, calling you a money-hungry bastard, calling you uh, 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 reckless in your surgery, uh, that you just take advantage of people in a, in a, uh, in a uh, sensitive uh, time of their lives uh, – you know, I know I'm not that person, and yet when you hear it, you think, you think, oh my god! You know, did I make that decision incorrectly? Was I thinking about my own self-interest and not the patient's self-interest? And you actually do get these moments of doubt where you think, gee, am I as good a person as I think I am? Well, it, it, I, I guess part of it is being spiritual as well, because spiritually, uh, I always think to myself, well, look, you know, I am a good person. Good things are going to happen, and you know what? What may not make sense today will hopefully make sense tomorrow. And that, and that's how I got over it. I, I started letting it get to me for a while there, but then I met with this guru in India. And I spent about five days with him and saying, look, you know, this is what's happening to me in Australia. They're making up all these stories about me. They're just – and it's all by jealous colleagues and uh, this and that. And, and now I can't operate in Australia. And he goes, Charlie uh, – I mean – he spent five days with me, but at the end of the day, this is what it boiled down to. It boiled down to one day, it'll all make sense. Wow. And so you have to have that spirituality too, Russ. You've got to think to yourself, well, look, I'm a good person. Karma will work. You know, this is all happening for a reason. And one day I'm going to look back and go, thank God for those haters. Because if it wasn't for those haters, I wouldn't be in this terrific situation I'm in right now. Oh, man, I relate to that so much. I 
I got attacked by the Queensland government and the old boys clubbing. Like I, my, 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 I got an organisation to help survivors of institutional abuse, and I got attacked by the Queensland government uh, people in the old boys club that produced fake documents, fake in a parliamentary inquiry. I might add. I'm sitting back going, how come I don't get a say in this? The frustrating part for me was, how come I, how come you won't let me challenge you on this? If you challenge, I'll, I'll show that you're lying. And, and that's that's the hard part when people are... For me, the hardest part for me is when people are telling lies about you. To your face. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? What was the first hospital assignment that you got to? Look, I've always had uh, trouble, uh, Russ. I mean, right from the get-go. The first hospital I worked at was a hospital called Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. Yeah. They do the jail stuff there too, don't they? They've got a hospital in Bay, yeah. yeah. they do. <laughs> uh, I was well respected by the patients and my uh, fellow workers and all the residents and uh, I unfortunately uh, got a bit too big for myself. I did an interview for a newspaper uh, saying that, you know, uh, I, I was really enjoying neurosurgery because it gave me the ability to save lives and this and that and... They didn't like the fact that I got these uh, uh, this uh, limelight sh- sh- uh, shone on me. So I was fired as a neurosurgical registrar by the boss who uh, you know came up with some ridiculous excuse like I shouldn't have operated on a patient without getting permission of him. It, it turned out that you know it was in the days before mobile phones and this patient was dying. I took him to the operating room, saved his life, but I couldn't get permission before I did it because the, the guy was in the car and I and I couldn't reach him. Anyway, so he used that as an excuse to fire me off the training program and thankfully all my colleagues uh, and all the nurses got together and supported me and I was reinstated again. But uh, right from the start, right from the start of my career, I've always come uh, head on against the uh, bureaucracy and against uh, hierarchy and uh, and these people who are sort of uh, 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 the the governing bodies or the executives. Do you think racism's got anything to do with that, Charlie? No, no. I mean, I, I think it has to some degree, but uh, but no, it's a very small part of it. It's, it's my personality, Russ. I mean, I just rub people up the wrong way. I polarise people. Some people love me. Some people hate me. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you found that as well. When, when you're non-duplicitous, when you don't have diplomacy, when you're not a good politician and you just speak the truth and you are truthful to yourself and you are who you are, uh, then it's going to... By definition, it's going to polarise people. Uh, and uh, so I've done that. I take full blame for that. I, uh, I, you know, I could have easily played the game. Uh, I could have easily towed the party line, been one of the boys, uh, done the wrong thing by my patients but the right thing by my colleagues and by me. Uh, I could have easily done that and I would have been accepted into the fraternity, but I, uh, I, I chose not to. There must. I just want to. There must be a real buzz when you've just done a brain operation and you've saved someone's life. Tell us a bit about that, mate. How how does it make you feel? Like, must be like winning the grand final every day. It, it you know because there's so many negative uh, and knockbacks. You know, cases that don't go well. You know, politics of medicine, complaints from uh, from colleagues and stuff. Uh, that when you get the success story, it does actually, mate, you're right, it makes up for all the negative yeah. stuff. So when a patient, when you've got a difficult tumour, you take it out, they wake up, they're moving everything, you've got the tumour out and you've bought them time or you've cured them, Russ, there's no, there's no better feeling than that. You know, it's a, it's a great 
positive affirmation of, of what you're doing is, is right. Tell me this. Like, I, 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 I was talking to someone about pressure and your name came up. And, and we're talking about uh, Andrew Jones. He's 10 metres out. He's got to kick a, a, a penalty goal. He's got to pick a, a conversion over the, to win the game. No one's going to die if he doesn't kick that goal. The pressure that you're under compared, like people used to go, what about the pressure that bloke absorbed? And then we look at someone like you, and he ain't fit enough to tie your shoelaces as far as pressure yeah. goes. I get so upset when I watch sport on TV. I'll, I'll just give you one example. I was watching uh, uh, Rafael Nadal, Nadal playing uh, Djokovic, and it was a long game. I think it went for six or seven hours. I remember the game. And I'll never forget the commentators at the end going, oh, my God, what amazing sportsman. You know, they've been playing tennis for the last six hours. That's grueling. And I had just finished an operation the day before that went for 17 hours without a break, you know, and your arms are up like this the whole time concentrating under the microscope and the person's life is literally in your hands. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, you have no idea what uh, what a grueling uh, sport uh, or sport neurosurgery is because you don't get a break. You don't get to sit down between games. You don't get a drink. You don't get something to eat. You don't get uh, you know someone rubbing your back or anything. It's uh, basically you fighting this incredibly formidable opponent, i.e. your brain tumour, with your arms up constantly like this, focused, concentrating on someone's life in your hands. I mean, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, what I think is a real challenge, not playing tennis for seven hours. The pressure of that. Now, Charlie, tell me, just can you just tell us the first time, like, I don't know, I, 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 I'm not good with blood and guts, right? And I think of, I've heard of these stories. They use like a power sword, open someone's head up and then get to the brain. And Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Wow, man. And and. The first time you ever did that, what was what was going through your mind? Like people, that's one of the, the biggest questions I've, I've talked to a few people, and I said, ask him about what's the first time that you open up someone's skull. What's what's the feeling? <laughs> oh, you're absolutely shitting yourself, believe me. Because the first time you do it by yourself is not the first time you've seen it done. You, you know, you, there's a long process by which you gain experience by watching your boss operate, by doing some little cases first with him holding your hand and then with him in the room. So you've always got someone else to sort of uh, fall back on if, if, uh, if shit hits, hits the fan. But the first time I ever operated on my own, oh, my God, I just the anxiety, the fear, uh, it was terrible. You, you think, uh, because, you know, the buck stops here. If this patient doesn't make it, it's no one else's fault except my fault. And, uh, yeah, I remember it was a gunshot wound to the head. The bullet had gone through the carotid artery. I had to try and find the bleeder and stop the bleeding. And, oh, it was just uh, terrible. What do you think of people who ride motorbikes after being a brain surgeon? <laughs> They're yeah. fucking idiots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that because my mum said, you know, my mum used to, like, I want to buy a motorbike. You can't be riding one of them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Look, not only do I still ride a motorbike, Russ, but I ride it like an idiot still. I still ride my bike like I'm a young man with quick reflexes, and I know that my reflexes aren't as fast as they used to be. So, uh I'm an idiot. I'll be the first to tell you. <laughs> Once again, I want to bring you the, the, the focus, like that focus on who you, who you were just talking about then is like phenomenal. That's like, I'd hate to play chess with you. 
because you would just whiz me up in in two seconds because you're focused. But um, the, the 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 focus that you like, obviously, doing karate from a young age sort of help sort of generate your focus. Do that that you you think that ever come into play when you started coming into like doing doing those types of surgery? Oh yeah, are you kidding? Uh, so. When someone asks me what traits do you look for someone when you're picking, you know, who should be a surgeon or who shouldn't, you know, some people say, oh, they've got to get good marks and they've got to be intelligent and they've got to this and that. But the aptitudes that I like, I look for, there's two, kindness and, and tenacity. So kindness is a really important one because if you're kind and you want the best thing for your patient, then even if you don't have the skills, you're either going to upskill or you're going to refer the patient to someone who's better than you. So that's really important. You've got to actually care for your patient. You've got to be kind and you've got to care for their best interests. The second one is tenacity. And uh, I saw a cardiothoracic surgeon operate when I was a medical student. And he was, uh, his name was Mark Shanahan. He was a brilliant man and a lovely, lovely person. And I saw him trying to repair a valve, but the heart was all weak and diseased. And every time he put a stitch in the heart muscle, it would tear, the valve would pull out. So he had to go and get some muscle from somewhere else to use a muscle patch to repair the heart. And, oh, my God, the guy just kept going and going and going. I swear it went for like two hours of him trying to repair this valve. And eventually, of course, he succeeded. And uh, I remember walking into the tea room with them afterwards and doing it, you know, just talking about the case and uh, he goes, uh, I go, you know, that that was amazing what you just did there, not because, you know, uh, of any other reason except your sheer perseverance and tenacity. And he said to me, yeah, that's a quality that I look for in a, in a, uh, in a surgeon. It's, it's the same quality I look for because, you know, many of the cases that I've done where I've taken out a tumour, it wasn't so much because, I'm, you know, I've got better hands or better knowledge or better 3D perception. It's pure tenacity where I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to keep going until that tumour's out where other people would have sort of given up or got tired or sort of, you know, resigned themselves to the fact that it couldn't be done. It's, you know, pure tenacity. That tenacity comes from you being bullied, yeah? I don't know. Do you think it comes from that? Well, I'll just restate, I'll rephrase that. So as a kid... You overcome a lot. Now, you just said to me before you kept getting back up, getting back up and getting back up and not giving up. Do you think that sort of added to the tenacity that you have? Yeah, I, yeah, I guess it has. Uh, I think a lot of it's inherent as well because, you know, Steve was a good buddy of mine and uh, I'll never forget the time that we were down at the beach together with the kids and uh, one of the kids gave me a tangled up bit of fishing line and he wanted me, she wanted me to untangle it. So I started untangling it, and about an hour and 15 minutes later, I still hadn't completely untangled it. And Steve looked at me and goes, oh, my God, you're still at that. I can't believe how you've, uh, you've been at it for like an hour and 15 minutes and haven't given up. And then, I, and, and then he goes, now I realise why you do what you do and why you can do what you do. And it struck me at that moment then that that – you know, again, I used to think, well, wouldn't everyone do it? Wouldn't anyone just spend an hour and 15 minutes untangling the fishing line? Uh, and uh, I realised then that it is a, a trait that, uh, uh, that that I thankfully have. 
you would have been an amazing lawyer. You would have been an amazing barrister with that sort of characteristic. Because a lot of them just get in a, they get into a bit of a tangle and they just plead you up and say, "No, I can't help you." That would have been an amazing quality of a barrister. Let me tell you, I've had a few, and um, when things get a bit tangled, they just give up. But man, that would have been an amazing quality to have as a barrister. Uh, yeah, it's a good life, I guess. What do you do to wind down? Like, what do you like? You come off that seventeen-hour shift. What do you do? Like, how do you sort of wind your brain down? Because that brain of yours is flying at two hundred miles an hour while you're doing that sort of stuff. Well, look, I've got a routine. Firstly, riding a motorbike, you can't think about anything else except anything else except staying alive on the road. So that's a good way of escaping the trials and tribulations of the day. When you get on that bike, you can't think about the case, you can't think about all the stress or anything, you've just got to concentrate on staying alive on the road. So that winds you down immediately. Then you get home and, you know, I can't sleep, you're right, because the adrenaline's pumping, it's been pumping for 17 hours. So I usually get in front of the TV and watch something really sort of banal and very uh, escapist. So I love, you know, violent movies, so I I watch uh, action movies, uh, and yeah, that's what I. Don't seem to get that, Charlie. I love violent movies. <laughs> I love your honesty. I love violent movies. Everyone's like, I watch violent movies, but I won't admit that I do it. You know. <laughs> no, I like those. Yeah, I like those movies with Schwarzenegger and. Uh, Have you seen Heat? Have you Gale. seen Heat with uh, Robert De Niro? Heat, love Heat. My favourite movies. I've, have I seen? I've seen it probably twenty or thirty times. One of my favourites, and The Town. You got to watch The Town. Love The Town yeah. too. Yeah, Ben Affleck. Great movie. And, and I'm like, what are you doing these days to sort of keep fit? You're still doing the karate? No, uh, I've lost a little bit of testosterone, so I don't have that aggression that I used to have, that sort of – I was never really a pugilist, as in I, I loved fighting, but I certainly wasn't – I didn't back off from a fight, and I uh, – yeah, I wouldn't mind a bit of biffo. <laughs> uh, you want that in the surgeon. But now <laughs> – <laughs> that, well, I was a bouncer, remember? I was a bouncer all through university. So that. Where did you bounce at? Let's touch on that. Let's, where did you bounce at? What area did you bounce at? So I started bouncing uh, at uh, college uh, gigs. So I was at college, and it turned out that a lot of the college balls, like the Bassa Ball, used to get a lot of crashes, like 200 crash people crashing every ball, which was really bad for the business and stuff. So they asked me to, I had my black belt, I was teaching karate at the college. So they asked me to be the uh, bouncer and I, I found that I really had an aptitude for it. I enjoyed it. I was good at it. Uh, and the first year I bounced at the Bassa Ball, instead of 200 crashes, we had about 10, maybe 15 crashes only. So it was really good. And then after that, I decided that I'd be a bouncer in town. So I was a bouncer at the new Chevron Hotel uh, which used to be where the Chevron Hotel used to be, and then as uh, uh, Kings Cross, and then I was a bouncer at uh, Centrepoint Tavern. I was a bouncer there for about three years, all through university. Uh, so yeah, I was a bouncer at a lot of the uh, venues in town. Well, tell us about the cross. What did you think of the cross in the day, mate? I'm, I'm trying to get John Ibrahim on the show. So, um, what did you think, what did you think of the cross? It's it's really lost its magic, hasn't it? Oh my God, it's lost its character completely. It's uh. It's kind of sad, really. I mean, there's always got to be a bit of a seedy part in any city and why not have it concentrated in one particular place? And uh, I don't think it was that seedy anyway. I mean, I mean, having worked up there and, uh, 
Now, there was a real code of ethics and a code of behaviour amongst uh, people up there anyway. You know, as soon as one of the bouncers had a problem, all the bouncers from everywhere used to join in and help them out. Uh, you know, uh, no violence against women. That was a real code. Uh, if anyone ever saw violence against women, they'd be uh, held to play. Um, you know, respect to kids, uh, no drugs. Uh, that was a real code amongst all the bouncers up at the cross uh, and a lot of the uh, uh, venue owners as well, that they wouldn't tolerate drugs, they wouldn't try to tolerate any sort of violence against women, uh, and there was, uh, there was a camaraderie amongst us. So, no, I, I loved the cross. It was colourful. Uh, it was very interesting, and it provided me with uh, good income for a few years. Did you ever meet Karate Steve Sue? No, I never met Crady. So that was, that was pro- you know, I'm, I'm way, I'm older than you, I think, Russell. So it's... Uh, what are you, Charlie, 64? 64, yeah. 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 So oh, in my you- day, oh, gee, I can't remember the names now, but there was a couple of Czechoslovakian boys that were sort of big names in karate. Uh, never met Bruce Lee, but I met, uh, who was the guy that was the world? Uh, Chuck Norris, I met him once. He was a adjudicator in one of the competitions I was in. So I met some of the big names, but no, in those days uh, there weren't too many big names in Australia. Tell me what's going on now, Charlie. You've been copping a bit of grief in the media. You, have you been banned from practising in Australia at the moment? Is that correct? Yeah, it's not so much banned, but I just can't get a gig. Yeah. Uh, because it's clear that I have my colleagues stacked against me. It's clear that I've got the governing body stacked against me. It's clear that I've got the media hounding me. Uh, I've just become too high risk for most hospitals to accept. So, and not only that, you know, to get a gig at a hospital that does neurosurgery, uh, you need to have the approval of the local neurosurgeons or the resident neurosurgeons, and I'm never going to get that because they're the very ones that have created this problem in the first place. It's crazy, but you'd have so many families want you to operate on them. That would be the thing that... Like, I've seen stuff on social media and in the media in general. You've got all these families that are lined up. They want you here. They want you helping them. I'm telling you, it's sad. I used to be angry. Now I'm not angry. I'm just so sad about it because, uh, you know, I'm going to survive, okay? I'll survive. Financially, I'm not doing well at the moment, but, you know, I can live off the smell of an oil rag, so that doesn't bother me. So I will survive. Uh, I've got my mind. I've got my health. I've got lovely family and friends around me. And uh, so I'm going to survive. The saddest thing, Russ, is that, you know, because of the malice and vehemence and uh, vilification uh, of basically one person, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of kids uh, in Australia and around the world are going to die. They're dying right now. Uh, I can tell you now that we get three or four cases every day across my desk of tumours that I know that I can operate on. I know I can save their lives and uh, and I can't do it. And they don't have the resources to go overseas. Uh, and not only that, now, of course, they're trying to stop me from operating overseas as well. That very journalist is now making trouble for me, so I can't operate in uh, South Africa anymore. They tried to stop me from operating in Spain. They succeeded in stopping me from operating in New Guinea. I was going to do charity work in New Guinea, uh, teaching the local neurosurgeons, operating for free on little kids with terrible brain tumours, and I can't even do that now because of the uh, 60 Minutes uh, uh, program. So it's sad. It's just so, so sad. Charlie, what's the problem with this one person? What's their gripe? Look, I don't know, uh, but unfortunately I do know that it's not – uh, the intention is not to present a fair story. 
because a few people have called me up and have said, you know, we got a phone call from so-and-so uh, and we started telling her that you're a good guy and, you know, a good surgeon and she goes, stop right there. I don't want to hear the good stuff. Just tell me the bad stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it's not as if that person or that media outlet has wanted to present a fair story right from the get-go. That is absolutely not the case. They have wanted to destroy me from the get-go and uh, they have spent, you know, hours and hours and weeks and days and months and years uh, trying to destroy me. And it looks like, you know, they've worked. It's, it's, uh, they've succeeded to their credit and to my, uh, you know, disappointment. Looking back, would you do anything differently? Oh, my God. I was just asked that recently and I couldn't answer it because uh, I guess the short answer is no because I'm proud of what I've done and I know that I've always done the right thing by the patient. Uh, so I, I wouldn't change that. But could I have played the game a bit better? Should I have played the game a bit better? Uh, maybe I could have, but I just... I'm fearful that by playing the game better, I would have compromised my uh, ethics and I would have compromised my uh, goal to make patient care paramount. Uh, and if I can just give you a quick example so you know what I'm talking about. You know, if you get given a patient that has been told by several people, multidisciplinary teams, other senior neurosurgeons that their tumour is inoperable, and then they come and see you, and you think, well, oh, gee, it is nasty, uh, but, you know, the kid's going to die anyway, probably going to die pretty soon. There's a small chance I could take it out with a successful outcome. Uh, you've got two choices. You can say to that person, look, I'm so sorry, it is, it is inoperable, I can't do it, and that is by far the best thing you can do for yourself and for your career and for your reputation because, it, you know, no risk <laughs> In doing that, you're not going to you're not going to have a bad outcome. You're going to uh, your colleagues are going to be really pleased that you've given the same uh, uh, response. You're going to uh, uh, be popular amongst the multidisciplinary team. Uh, you're not going to challenge anyone's uh, sort of uh, status. Uh, so that's by far the best thing you can do for self preservation. Or you can go well. There is a small chance I could take that out. There's a small chance you could get a good outcome. It's high-risk surgery, uh, but, you know, I'm going to offer you that surgery. Okay, now what does that do? That puts your head directly on the chopping block. If things go badly, then you are then open, you're opening yourself to your colleagues who go, see, I told you you shouldn't have done it, plus you're opening yourself to medical legal uh, things, uh, plus, of course, you're going to hurt the patient. And, uh, you know, so it is the best thing you can do for your patient because you've told the truth, uh, but it's the worst thing you can do for yourself. Now, if things go really well, and thankfully in the majority of cases things went really well in those cases, uh, then it's, it's great. It's a win-win for everyone because it's a win for the patient. It's a win for you because it's positive affirmation. You know, it's great. It just The bad thing about it, of course, is it makes your colleagues who called the tumour inoperable look silly. Uh, and they take that out on you uh, for making them look bad. I'll tell you, Charlie. If, man, if I got a brain, uh, if I got a brain tumor that's going to kill me, and you said to I me, mean, "There's a twenty-five percent chance we can get rid of this." Man, I'm rolling that dice. You know, I want you to do it. And that you'd have a lot of patients. Obviously, they're going to give you permission to do that. They're going to give you permission to do that. So, yeah. what's the problem? what's the problem with these? What, what's their, their their resentment that you got it right? Yeah. 
you think about it like this, Russ. You know, if you've got a guy down the road doing better stuff than you, saving people's lives that you've called, in op- you know, you've sent them to their death and this person, it does make you look bad. Yeah, yeah. So there's two options you have. You can either go, holy shit, that guy's doing something different, it's better, uh, I better upskill. Well, what does upskill mean? Upskill means you've got to take time off work to learn the techniques. Sometimes you've got to go away and do a course for six weeks or six months. You've got to buy the equipment. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to put your own head on the block. You've got to, you know, take risks. And you've got, you know, and so that's how you upskill. Or you can go, holy fuck, uh, unless I destroy that person, then I'm going to constantly be made look to, to look bad. It's a whole lot easier to destroy someone, especially with the system that we have at the moment. With the system we have at the moment, all a doctor has to do is, you know, make a complaint against a fellow doctor and that doctor is presumed guilty until proven innocent. That's the system, the way it is at the moment. So uh, it's very easy to destroy someone who's competing against you, who's making you look bad. There's so many similarities. Like, I mean, what you go through, like I help survivors of institutional sexual abuse begin the healing journey and and I'm against, the system is against me. You know, we've got Queensland, people in Queensland changing legislation, telling lies and changing legislations to get rid of me, right? And, and I, I relate I relate what's happening to you. I, they're producing false documents. They've got the old boys club of a bunch of lawyers that are dirty that I was stealing all their work and I was making them accountable and that what you do, you make them accountable and they don't like it. Uh-huh. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing that kills me is yeah. I make them accountable. You make, you make them accountable and, you know, and, mate, it just, that's yeah. just... That's exactly what you're doing, and that's what you're doing wrong, you know, wrong. You're doing the yeah. right thing by the person, you're doing the wrong thing by the system because you're making them look bad, you, you're not a lawyer, and yet you're probably still getting better results than they are uh, uh, without the qualifications. It, ma- it makes them look terrible. So, you know, you think about it. Can you imagine a lawyer going, oh, my God, that guy who's got no qualifications is getting better results than me, and I've got to go and learn what he's doing. I've got to accept what he's doing. Maybe I've got to refer some patients, sorry, some clients to him. Uh, uh, do you think they're going to do that? Good-willed person would do it. Someone who's kind, who's got the greater good in mind will do it, but someone who is threatened by you is not going to do that at all. They're going to try and destroy you. For sure, man. That's what I like about you, Charles. Like, man, I'll tell you, man, you are just dead set a warrior, mate, and I've got the utmost respect. And <laughs> families love you, man. Families love you. No, the, I, I bet you the kids that you, the, the, the people that you've saved are, are, are pissed off about this, and I'm sure they'd be they'd be letting you know what's happening to you is wrong. There's so many people have said to me, man, what, like, you've got the, the general public, because we know about the, the old boys club and the, the profession, especially the medical profession, are, are full of snobby-nosed, people that have had a, uh, a, you know, the silver spoon sort of treatment in their life and haven't had much of accountability, when someone like you comes along and they call you all these horrible names and you're making them accountable, fucking it's a dent to the ego. Well, no, I know. Look, I think what they've underestimated is the general intelligence of the population. I think the popula- the general pub, the public have been incredibly perceptive. They've, mm. they've seen that it just doesn't pass the pub test. I mean, just it's as simple as this. The guy's done 11,000 brain tumours and after a year investigation, they find three patients who are willing to stand up and say he did the wrong thing. You know, come on. Even if those three patients are telling the truth, 
even if he did do the wrong thing by those three patients, what about the 11,000 patients out mm. there that had good results? It just doesn't pass the pub test. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't with me. Honestly, man, I could talk to you. You're one of the most fascinating human beings I've ever spoke to. Oh, well, thanks, Russell. It's been a pleasure doing it, and uh, I have great respect for you. We're both risk takers, Charlie. In some ways, we're both trying to save lives. I hope you use your tenacity and focus that you had to use since you were a kid to get through this next challenge. And when you're in Sydney, let's catch up, huh? That'd be great, old son. No worries, mate. You take care, Charlie. Pleasure, mate. Charlie, thanks for being on the sticker. No worries.